Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Allison, and this is Almost There Lazy, a 90-day fiancé podcast. Today, I will be recapping Season 5, Episode 5 of 90-Day Fiancé, Happily Ever After. This is the episode that aired this past Sunday. Uh, I'm a little late this week. It's just been a busy week with uh, work stuff, life stuff, everything, even though I'm still mostly not leaving my house. I am wearing a mask, etc., but anyway, the good news is this week I remembered to set up my DVR to record this. There are a lot of reasons why I still have a cable package. Uh, the primary reason being Big Brother, which I have watched every single season of with my mom and my sister since it started. And obviously we're all waiting on bated breath for this next season of Big Brother. We're really hoping for August. They're just going to surprise us with like a special quarantine all-stars or something. But anyway... I have the cable package so I can get CBS without having to pay for all access. And my mom and I like to sync up and watch the episodes together. So we'll both start our DVR and then like press play together, go through the commercials together and like text about it the whole time. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I just hope we get to do that this summer. But on the plus side of that, I also get to DVR things like 90 Day Fiance because if I watch it through the TLC Go app, they play like... 10 fucking commercials per commercial break. And the problem I'm having right now is, so say they have five slots for commercials per break, at least two or three of them are this same Logitech commercial, like Logitech makes keyboards, mouses, periphery items, things like that. It's the same commercial with the same fucking song. And I am so tired of hearing it that I have to mute it. And plus, like these episodes are just really long. Uh, Happily Ever After is a two hour time slot. So if you watch it with all these commercials, like that's a that's a big time investment. Whereas if I'm able to DVR it and fast forward, I really like it's about an hour and a half of watching. And I don't know, I not like I have a lot to do, but I don't want to sit there and watch the same commercial a million times. It's Friday. I'm off from work today. Um, my dog is currently at doggy daycare, which is probably his favorite place in the world after my parents' house because I had an electrician in this morning to install something for me. Last weekend, I just went on, I went like full Joanna Gaines and ripped this bathroom vent out of my bathroom, like the exhaust vent. Um, like 20 years worth of dust and asbestos and all kinds of carcinogens rained down upon me as I ripped it out of the ceiling. But, you know, I did it. I it was a successful removal, but I don't know anything about electricity. I don't want to fuck around with it. So anyway, this guy came and put it in for me, which was nice. And now I have a whole dog-free afternoon ahead of me to talk about 90 Day Fiancé. As an added note, I'm not recapping it as of right now, but if you are not watching this current season of The Other Way, which airs on Mondays, you really need to get on that. Armando and Kenny have to be the purest relationship I think we've ever seen on this entire franchise. And I will give credit where it's due. I think we've had a lot of like really in love, genuine couples, especially in the early seasons. I'm thinking about like Kyle and Noon and Lauren and Alexi. But just like Kenny and Armando, first of all, being the first gay male couple is really special. And just the way that Armando's daughter Hannah plays into it, how she's so excited to have her two daddies and just the way they seem to truly love each other. We're all rooting for them. From my inter sorry, from my Instagram sleuthing, I think that they are still together. That's my guess. I know Hannah's been pictured with the dog. I'm sorry, I forget her name, but like Kenny's 15-year-old Chihuahua who made the journey to Mexico with him. So fingers crossed, I really hope they have their happily ever after. 
but yeah, aside from just like that pure Disney moment on with that couple, there's a lot of like really juicy drama with Brittany over in Jordan. Uh, just like it's a lot. I definitely recommend it. It's very entertaining. And the other way, I know some folks are saying like, it should be longer, and I agree, but it is only an hour of your time. So it's not that much of a commitment if you're already slogging through these two-hour episodes of Happily Ever After. All right, so today I'm going to start with Tanya and Sinjin. I don't think I've talked about them yet this season because they just weren't on the episodes that I already talked about. So yeah, obviously they're returning for their second season after their 90-day fiancé. I mean, what can I say about these two? Like, they have to break up eventually right and hopefully sooner rather than later I am not a fan of Tanya even with this new narrative she's trying to create about Sinjin I will not forget the way that she treated him and the things that she said to him in her 90 day fiance season which if you don't remember or you're just like a casual watcher um when she brought Sinjin here on the k1 visa it's a 90 day visa as we've talked about many many times I just did an episode kind of recapping visas if you just go back one so anyway he's there for 90 days from south africa he's living in a shed that she didn't bother to take any of the garbage out of before he moved in he can't work it's like i think it was like the middle of winter in connecticut which is also like not fun and for 30 of those days tanya left to go to central america to take some herbology natural healing course and she was so mean to him about it, about how this is her dream to be like the community witch doctor and that she needs to do this to support their future. And then we see her and she's there, like, I guess, learning, question mark. But she's really just like partying and didn't really care that he was sitting there alone drinking whiskey for breakfast. She also famously called a psychic with Sinjin and admitted to the psychic that maybe it was an astrologist. I don't care, you guys. It's the same fucking thing to me. Anyway. Tanya admitted to that person that she doesn't think Sinjin is her soulmate. She thinks that her soulmate is basically her high school boyfriend who she broke up with 15 years ago. Sinjin was very hurt by this, but they continued with the wedding. So all that being said, as she talks about their problems this season, I don't think that they're all invalid. I think there's a lot wrong with Sinjin's behavior and his thinking and all of that. However, I think Tanya with those big bug eyes is just a master manipulator. And I think she is very aware of the cameras. I think she's very smart. And I think she is intentionally trying to recreate the narrative to make herself into the victim and to make Sinjin out to be the bad person in this relationship instead of sharing equal blame for this, like, just dysfunction and, you know, this bad relationship. So to get to the episode, we open up with Tanya going to the nail salon with her friend Monique. As we know, Tanya broke her foot in a car accident and she is acting like she needs to be weighted on hand and foot. And to be fair, the people in her life seem to be accommodating this and doing everything they can for her. I will point out, I know at the reunion for their 90 day season, Tanya was like in a wheelchair with her foot propped up. At this point, when she's going to the nail salon, she's like in a full walking boot with one crutch. Nevertheless, her very nice friend Monique is like opening doors for her. She's putting a pillow behind her back. I mean, we saw the last time that she was on with Sinjin, like she's making Sinjin shower her. I bring this up because it's important because a lot of what she starts talking to with Monique is that she and Sinjin are having a lot of problems in their relationship and she is seeing a lot of like pressure points 
in their relationship. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but she's uh, she's identifying like the stress of her injury as being the source of a lot of their drama. And to that, I say like, well, maybe if you weren't making your husband bathe you with your foot injury, maybe he wouldn't be so stressed out about taking care of you. So they're having this conversation while they get their nails done. I, you know, I wish I can go do this. And this manicurist is like full on listening. She's making eye contact. She's like stopping what she's doing with the nail file. She, even at one point, I swear, she like responded to something Tanya and her friend are saying. And to be fair, I am sure that every manicurist, pedicurist, people who work at any salon, they are listening to you all the time. But the point is, like, they're pretending they're not. They're pretending they're super busy and that, like, you have this privacy. So I just thought that was really funny. I've, like, literally never seen that before. I do think her friend Monique seems really nice, but I have to say her fake lashes are just out of control. I Maybe, maybe some of you have had a different experience. I have never gotten my lashes done like that. I haven't seen them look good on very many people. To me, they always kind of look like that Muppet lady with like the crazy hair. What's her name? Like Janine or something. I'm I'm sorry, Janet. I think her name's Janet. I don't know. They're just like very over the top to me. But, you know, I'm sorry because her friend does seem very nice and supportive. So apparently after Sinjin went to that job interview at the Irish bar where he tried and failed to pour a Guinness and then sat down to drink said Guinness, apparently he came home that night like pretty wasted. So he didn't stop at the Guinness. Like obviously he didn't get the job, but he just decided like, all right, I'm just going to call it a night and get drunk. So here is where Tanya's starting to drop these breadcrumbs with her friend about how she and Sinjin used to party a lot, but now, like, the drinking is just out of control, and he doesn't seem to know when to stop, and she thought he was going to grow up, but he's just, like, going overboard. And I will say again, I think this is a very valid conversation to have with your partner. It's something to, it's a valid thing to be worried about and all of that, and I, I just don't see a lot of evidence that it's actually happening to the degree that Tanya is saying. When they first showed up this season, she herself said that she drinks a lot too. And I think that tracks with what we've seen with Mother Tanya, with her freaking the fuck out that Sinjin had some of her Jack Daniels. Um, So I would guess that they were one of these couples who met. And like she said, they partied a lot. They drank a lot all the time. And now she wants to cut it back. And instead of telling him about that, you know, like communicating, She is getting in front of a camera and remembering that everyone thought that she was fucking evil last season and is making him out to be the bad guy as well. Which is not to excuse his behavior if he is truly just like drinking all day and not really wanting to do much, doesn't have a job. That's obviously not good either. And that's when I say there is dysfunction and immaturity on both sides of this relationship. So then we see it's like a nice evening and Sinjin and Tanya hop in an Uber to go to dinner. I just have to say this type of restaurant that they went to is like kind of thing I miss the most. It looks like a local small Italian restaurant, like BYOB situation where you get the hot bread on the table, a nice Caesar salad and, you know, maybe like a fried calamari appetizer. It just looks like I don't know when I'm going to be able to go do that again. I hate to keep harping on it, but it's like every time I see these people (laughs) out in public doing things and not appreciating it for what it is the way that we all did, it just kind of makes me a little bit nuts. 
So in the middle of this nice dinner, they have some red wine poured in those glasses. Tanya decides this is the right time for her to bring up Sinjin's drinking, which I know I'm just a show everybody. I know they're sitting in front of cameras, but who does this on a nice night out? Save the fight for when you all go home and have a few more glasses of wine and like really get mad at each other. Okay. So Sinjin admits that he is drinking more from the stress of her broken foot and having to bathe his grown ass wife. He also points out, like, if she hadn't broken her foot, their plan was either to travel more or to move more, which, I'm sorry, to move somewhere else. I think they wanted to move down south. Like, he doesn't really like the cold, and that was kind of their plan. Which, once again, this tracks with the way that they met, that Tanya went to South Africa, kind of traveling on a whim, being one of those Instagram women who is like, I like to travel, and I have wanderlust. And I think he was kind of a free spirit like that. Something very important about Sinjin's past that came up on his 90-day season is that right now he's 30 years old. But as a young man, like in his early 20s, he worked in the mines in South Africa. And it was very hard work. It was very dangerous work, very grueling. And he had a lot of friends who worked with him as miners who were very injured or who died on the job. So he has a certain amount of, I don't even know if it's like officially PTSD, but he carries a lot of trauma from that where not only did his young friends die, he was working under these horrible conditions. But now, you know, a decade later, he's like, I don't really want to work like that anymore. Um, He has this work aversion, which like, obviously it's unrealistic. It's very immature for a married person, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. He's not some like spoiled millennial who doesn't want to work a nine to five, even though that's for most of us, unfortunately, how the world works. So anyway, they start talking about this whole thing about, you know, how their plans got disrupted. And he points out that you know, I really only came to America to be with you. I never really dreamt of being an American and I don't really want to raise my kids here. And she freaks out at this because as we know, Tanya believes that her eggs are rapidly drying up at the ripe age of 30 and that she wants to have children now, now, now. Even though she went to that herbology school. (laughs) Is that, I don't know if that's the Harry Potter thing or if that's a real thing. But she she went to become an herbologist with Professor Sprout. And before she broke her foot, though, she wasn't working as that. She was working as a bartender. And so now she's claiming that she can't work until, like, her foot is all healed up, which I have a lot of questions about, like, there's nothing you could do. There's no other experience that you have. Like, I don't know. It, it just doesn't, like, she was so adamant for leaving him for 30 days. And then she's not doing the thing that she claims she wants to do. But in the, another, on the other side of that, she's going on and on about like, well, we don't see eye to eye to our future and I wanted to make our five-year plan and our 10-year plan. Like, Tanya, what would that plan even be? Because you're not, neither one of you is doing anything. And then we get to the root of this issue, which Sinjin brings up the infamous, you don't even think I'm your soulmate and yet you want to make a future with me. So I don't know if this is him like openly starting to regret this marriage that he went ahead and got this like tattoo ring with this woman who weeks earlier had very coldly tried to tell him that she doesn't think that he is her soulmate. So obviously this is still a very fresh wound. He took it very seriously and it's something that is weighing on all the decisions he's making and like honestly his depression and his homesickness as he's in this Connecticut apartment with a woman with a broken foot. 
he starts to wonder out loud if like maybe neither one of us is fully committed to this. Like we wouldn't have gotten married if it weren't for our immigration issues. Like you didn't want to move to South Africa, but we still wanted to be together. That's really the only reason why we got married. And this is where she starts to make a left turn again. And she starts to divert the conversation into his drinking, which right away, Sinjin's like, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. Um, it's about, I I don't want to make a commitment because I don't like being tied down to things. And yet right now I feel very tied down because I have a wife now and we have this apartment and I can't just pick up and go anywhere and, you know, all of this. So that's where we leave them. Um like I said, I don't want to sound heartless, but I hope these two break up unless things actually, you know, make a complete 180 and they can actually communicate and get on the same page because neither one of them seems very happy right now. Next, I'm going to power through Larissa and Colty. I just I want to get them done with. They have way too much screen time and I don't really like either one of them. Uh, I just want to point out, too, if you're not on the 90 Day Fiance subreddit, you should get there. Um, it seems like there's been a really interesting trend the past few weeks where people who have either firsthand or family experience in XYZ culture are explaining some of the things that we are seeing on the screen that TLC is doing a really shitty job of explaining or that TLC is misrepresenting. For example, people had a lot of insight into the apartment situation with Jihoon and Devin over in South Korea. That was really insightful. Like, spoiler alert, it was really not that bad. It's just like what a South Korean apartment looks like. I bring this up because somebody just posted, I think yesterday, a really interesting perspective on basically why Larissa talks the way that she does. I don't want to accent shame anybody. Like learning any other language is really hard. And I think in linguistics, they say that like the last thing that, like the hardest thing to master as a language student, as an adult is uh, phonetics, like pronunciation. So obviously, like the reason why Larissa adds like an E to the end of everything, it has an actual like phonetic reasoning in the Brazilian language and in Portuguese in general. Uh, like I took a lot of advanced Spanish when I was in college and I took this one class in Spanish phonetics. We're basically unlike English in Spanish and I'm sure Portuguese and pretty much every romance language. Um, there is like a very specific way of pronouncing things based on the position of vowels in the sentence and where you're supposed to put stress and everything. So anyway, I would have these assignments where I literally had to go into the language lab and learn how to pronounce certain things. And I would have to say it into a microphone until this program decided that I'd said it correctly enough to pass that module or whatever. And it was incredibly frustrating, as you can imagine. Um, but at the end of the day, that was one of the most useful classes I took because I really I think I have a very solid understanding of how things are pronounced in Spanish. Um, maybe I don't know. Uh, maybe it helped my accent, but I I don't know. It was just very interesting to learn that. So, yeah, like Larissa isms are very funny. They're cute. But there is also she doesn't just say it because she's I don't know doesn't know anything like she's saying it because her native tongue is Portuguese and that's the way things are pronounced so um yeah if you're interested in that at all I definitely recommend looking that up on to the episode so as we saw like our our cliffhanger for last week Larissa had to drive to the immigration office so one of these friends these American friends that TLC hired to be on the show this year this um 
this body sculpting technician who Larissa was pretending to be friends with drove her to this appointment. Now, this poor woman thought that she was just like giving her a ride. And then she finds out that Larissa is actively fearing her deportation when she walks into those doors. So now the woman is freaking out. I also noticed I am 90% sure that this woman has a car seat in her backseat. So she's probably like, oh, fuck. If this random woman gets deported, I had to pick up my kid at daycare in two hours. What am I going to do about that? Um, another point about her car is that she has a decal advertising her body sculpting business in the in the uh, rear window. So it's pretty neat. Well, good news is that Larissa does walk out of this office. Because it's Larissa, I it was never really clear to me like why she had to go into this appointment, what actually happened, but I think she was in there for about two hours. Um, I, I'm guessing that it has to do with her green card application because she says that they had to take her photo and her finger. But now that they've taken those biometrics, she's afraid they're going to put them into some system and figure out that she's been arrested for domestic violence three times. And, you know, if she gets deported or if her green card gets denied, that means she can't bring her kids to the U.S., you guys. Because Larissa is definitely interested in being a mother to her, her children. After that harrowing ordeal with the uh, body sculpting woman, Larissa just needs to relax. So she goes out into her backyard in an extremely tiny bathing suit that actually, as we'll unfortunately find out next week, is probably 10 sizes larger than what Colt's going to strap on when he goes to the beach in Brazil. So Larissa's out there laying down. She has a glass of rosé, just living her best life. But as she tells us in her talking head, she is very lonely. She especially grinds her gears that Colty has his new girlfriend and she is still single. So she wants to get back out there and meet people. Later, we see her entering a business to go on a date. And wouldn't you know it, Larissa is reuniting with Eric. He is the American guy that she dated after Colty, and uh, for some reason, he is still willing to see her. He is um, understandably guarded, but obviously loving the camera, and he points out to Larissa, like, I'm kind of confused that you want to come see me at this cafe that let us film because you broke up with me over text message. And Larissa tries to explain it in her best Larissa way. She doesn't really explain why she broke up with him, but she does claim that she cared about him way more than she ever cared about Colty. And, you know, he brings up that, you know, some drama happened after we broke up. And she tries to explain to us that she was getting some harassing phone calls that were calling her all sorts of things. After that, I broke it up with Eric. Some girls called me, sent messages, calling my butty, cheesy butt. I thought that was Eric that sent to the girls. Naturally, she assumed that Eric must be behind this harassment. And according to her, she made a police report because she was scared that it would mess up with her probation. I don't know. I never really figured out any point that Larissa was trying to make this entire episode, to be quite honest. But the good news is they both still feel their love flame and they decide to give it another shot. Um, he says they need to communicate better. Strongly agree, Eric, but let me know if you figure that out. And yeah, she puts it very succinctly that she felt like we were they were in the junior school when they were first together, but now they're in high school. Which is a great way to feel about your adult relationship. And finally, Larissa, paraphrasing the horrible, horrible Woody Allen, 
says, the heart want what he want. Speaking of matters of the heart, let's get to Colty and Mother Debbie. Uh, Here's my disclaimer. I don't think there are any winners in any of these storylines. I think Debbie is a bad person. I think what she did to Larissa was really shitty. I think Larissa is a shitty person. And of course, I think Colt is a huge shitbag, too. That being said, I am finding myself feeling very sympathetic to Debbie in this whole traveling situation. We'll get into that, but don't mistake my sympathy for her, I don't know, basic human needs to be any kind of stand behavior. I do not stand Mother Debbie. I'm just going to leave it at that. We open in their Las Vegas home and Colt and Debbie are preparing to go on their trip to Brazil to go visit Jess and her family. The trip that... um. Debbie has uh, wormed her way into so that her baby boy of 33 years old won't be harmed and won't be forced into marriage with this 26-year-old woman that he is in a relationship with. As we find out, this will be Debbie's first time leaving the United States, which, hmm, you know what doesn't really track? A last-minute trip that requires a passport. Getting a passport takes, like, even if you rush it, a very, you know, a little bit of time. You can't just walk in and out with a passport, okay? So I'm calling bullshit, TLC. You can't you can't pull one over on me, all right? Unlike Debbie, Colt has been to Brazil multiple times in search of women that he can manipulate and gaslight. So he reassures her about all of her concerns. Yes, they might be able to see what the Walmart looks like there. Yes, they have hot water. No, there's not a lot of crime. And yes, you can use your credit card. Things that you could fucking Google to figure out. And by the way, she should have called her bank already to tell them that she's going to be charging stuff in Brazil so that they don't shut down her card. I don't know. Why am I giving this woman any advice? I don't know. We get their little GoPro cams going and they are on their way. They have a 14-hour flight to her home city. I'm sorry if I mispronounce this. I don't speak Portuguese. I think it's Baravela. Um, which looks like if you put it into Google Maps, it's like an eight-hour drive south of Sao Paulo. So it's like on the coast as well. And let's just talk about a 14-hour flight. I I hate long flights. I'm not very well-traveled, but I do fly with some frequency. Most commonly, I am flying between the West Coast and the East Coast. So that's like a five-and-a-half, six-hour flight. And I hate it. I am such a baby about it. Like, if I'm flying to California or when I'm flying back from California, either way, it's like a type of flight that's going to affect my sleep in some way. When I fly from east to west, I like to take an early flight out so that I can get to the West Coast pretty early and still have a day. But that means like leaving for the airport at 4 a.m., you know, all of that. On the other hand, when I fly back to the East Coast from California, I like to take red eyes. um, One, because I hate myself. And two, so that way I get back to where I live like at six in the morning and I can go home, sleep for a few hours and also just not lose my day. So I get that it's exhausting and I... I I just get very antsy on a plane and anything more than five and a half hours, which is pretty much what I'm used to, I can definitely understand. So then we have Debbie, who's never really flown anywhere. Like, if anything, I could see her flying to, like, I don't know, Arizona for a weekend or maybe even Florida. But unless you're flying to Alaska or Hawaii, a 14-hour flight within the continental U.S. is very uncommon. So not only is she nervous about 
going to Brazil, leaving the, the United States for the first time, she's also just fucking exhausted. She probably didn't sleep the whole time. And as she points out, she's almost 70 years old. So by the time she and Colt land in Brazil, she is extremely exhausted. She just wants to go to the hotel and lay down, which is totally justifiable. And I will go as far as to excuse her for the bad mood that she was in, because quite frankly, I would have been in a bad mood too. So they get to Brazil. The exciting news for Debbie when they're going through the airport, I think, like to get to customs once they arrive in Brazil, is that there's a Panda Express. So it can't be that different than Las Vegas, right? They go, they get their suitcases, and finally Jess gets to meet Debbie. I'm sorry, but Jess was so rude to Debbie the entire time. Debbie was just kind of hanging back there a little shy, but she was smiling. And Jess just kind of just fucking stands there and like kind of smiles at her. She doesn't say, hello, my name is Jess. I feel like Ramona Singer teaching people about manners right now. But like, seriously. So from the from the get go, she was just very off putting, I feel, to this woman who is tired hasn't showered, probably hasn't eaten anything good in the past, like, 14 plus hours. So, you know, Debbie is out for blood. She doesn't want Colty to go to anybody else, but you can at least make an effort to be nice to this woman. Jess claims in her talking head that she is just, like, super on edge and super nervous after that phone call that Larissa made to her when they spoke broken English to one another instead of speaking in their native tongue in which Larissa told her that Colty is a demon and Debbie is a wolf. And so she really needs to watch out. That is what uh, Jess uses to excuse her behavior here. But all right. For her part, Debbie has um, some interesting things to say about Jess, her first impressions of her. They get into some kind of van taxi and the plan is that they're going to drop Debbie off so she can take a nap while Colt and Jess go do their thing. Um, another rude thing I thought maybe has to do with camera placement, but I don't know. They made Debbie sit in like the last row of this van, which I get car sick even in like the backseat of a four door sedan Uber. <laughs> like just as a grown adult, I don't do well in back seats. I will certainly not do well in the back of a van. So what better way to treat your 70-year-old mother who is already saying she doesn't feel well, that she is very exhausted, than to shove her in the back of the van? Oh, but wait, there's more. You can make it worse for her. Because not only is Jess continuing to ignore Debbie, she and Colty are like kissing up on each other and being very explicit about the private time they want and just being fucking nauseating. Who does this? Who does this? As they pass a beach, Colt and Jess make jokes about um, Katarina and Dominic and Debbie's like, who the fuck is that? And they explain that they they already picked out names for their kids. Um, As I've said about 12,000 times, I don't speak Portuguese, but it sounds to me that Jess is saying Katarina and Colt is saying Katrina. And finally, she just kind of gives up and she's like, yeah, 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 Katrina. However, all of this jokey, jokey, cutesy talk about children's names sets off Debbie again because now she is on lookout she is believing now that this woman is just after a green card we get to the hotel and for reasons that are beyond explanation just like everything colt has ever done he has booked a single room for himself jess and debbie like i said who does this this is disgusting i'm sure tlc would have shelled out the money 
But I'm also sure that TLC put him up to this so they could perpetuate this gross, incestuous narrative between Colty and Mother Debbie. They get up to the room and it is kind of like there is a door that shuts between the two sleeping areas, but it looks like a pocket door. Like it doesn't even like shut firmly. Like you just kind of have to slide it. That's what I, I think is going on here. And all three of them, Jess, Mother Debbie and Colty, they all point out like, uh oh, this won't be good for the sexy times if mother's right here. Ha 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 ha. So Debbie, uh, you know, she has just fucking had it. She goes into, um, that one room for some reason she lets the cameraman stay in there but she's just like if I don't lay down right now you're gonna have to bring me to a hospital because I just need some fucking rest Jess who has ignored this woman for the entirety of the probably the half hour to an hour between the airport and this hotel decides that this is a good time to go try to talk to her Debbie is laying there with, you know, in her socks with her eyes closed and Jess is standing there being so fucking annoying, telling her, but we're supposed to go out. We're supposed to go meet. Come on, get up. You could sleep later. Which leads Debbie to just have like a complete meltdown. Jess leaves that room and Debbie slams that pocket door. And, you know, I do not blame her in the slightest. And I hope she got her nap. Now, Jess, who is so unself-aware that maybe she is actually a good match for Colt, she talks us up to just Debbie not being friendly and that maybe Larissa was right about Debbie. She concludes her uh, segment this episode by saying, Deb is terrible. She's really bad with me. Yep, she's terrible when you tried to wake her up from her much-needed nap. Got it. Next up, let's hop on a flight. Let's go over to Moldova and check in with Libby and Andre. I'm just going to say again, apparently she's going by Elizabeth now. I I can't undo her name in my head. She's still Libby to me. There's just too many damn people on this show for someone to decide to change their name on me. Anyway, so we get an outside shot of Andre's parents' apartment building. It looks like your typical, like, bleak, stark, post-Soviet apartment. But on the inside, it's, like, very homey and nice. It's the morning and Andre's mother is busy making this elaborate breakfast for her guests who are, you know, Libby, her granddaughter and her son, who she hasn't seen in years. They're in the kitchen and she is like very intently offering instructions to Libby on how to like do something or cook something as they're cutting up fruit and mashing up avocados. Keep in mind, it seems like his mother can only speak Romanian and Libby's like Libby seems to understand Romanian, like very basic Romanian. okay, but she like obviously can't communicate back. So she's just like very politely going like, okay, uh uh-huh, like nodding along. At one point, Andre's mother calls for him to come help translate, and he just refuses. He's like, just talk to her. She understand. Over at the table, there's a really cute moment between in the background going on between Andre's dad and Eleanor. He's basically, like, ignoring all the conversation that's being had and just, like, reading to his granddaughter, playing with her. It was very cute to see. Because as she, as uh, Andre's mom is laying out this beautiful breakfast, it's like, it doesn't look too over the top for something you would serve guests. Like, yeah, it's like breakfast meats, like pastries, cut up fruit. Libby just has this face on. And she, like, goes into Andre right away. She's like, does your mother do this every day? And he's like, well, uh, yeah, I guess so. She does make breakfast. And he asks her in Romanian. And she's like, well, yeah, but obviously this is more extra because I have guests. Which, okay, I'm not going to defend Andre too much. He is rude. He is a misogynist. He does not treat Libby correctly. 
But I also don't appreciate what Libby is doing here, which is what they've been doing since they were on their 90 Day Fiance season, is she tries, she and her family especially, try to make Andre out to be this, like, super aggro macho guy. And yes, he is to an extent, but they try to exaggerate it for reasons, I guess, for the airtime to, like, push that plot. And it also doesn't fit in here that your very sweet mother-in-law obviously is going to make you a nice-ass breakfast when you show up to Moldova after, like, a 35-hour flight. Um, I also don't appreciate this dichotomy they're trying to make between Moldovans and Americans, especially when you're trying to draw that comparison with family Libby, who even her father, male and female, they are all a bunch of Karens. To me, they are not Americans. They are just, like, loud, brash, and that's not something to be proud of. Like... They're the type of people who think it's, like, okay to be rude because I'm an American. and You know what I mean? Like, they just act like typical American tourists. If, like, I can invoke that trope where they're just, like, I'm loud because I'm an American. Or I'm going to tell you what I think because I'm an American. And life in Tampa is the best way of life around the world. That kind of thing. So anyway, Libby gets in a jab and she's like, well, if you're such the man of the house, why aren't you working? Which, yeah. But then also in her talking head, she claims to be the breadwinner. Now, Libby, we all know the breadwinner is your father, who you just go over and you squeeze out some crocodile tears and he gives you all whatever, whatever you want. Later that night, they leave baby Eleanor with Andre's parents to go meet up with Andre's friends and have a night out. They head out in a taxi. Libby and Andre are wearing matching black puffer jackets, which is interesting. Um, and so Andre is like super happy. Obviously, he hasn't seen his friends in years. Um, like one of the friends is a guy that he actually lived with when he was in Ireland working when he eventually met Libby. He says they keep in touch pretty often, but it's been a very long time since they've all been able to be together in person, which I imagine is also really hard with the time zone difference. It has to be like, I don't like at least eight or nine hours time difference between Florida and Moldova. So trying to keep up that way is pretty hard. Libby in the taxi seems to have not cheered up. I don't know if she just hasn't gotten over her jet lag or if she's just putting on her her acting cap again um, because she tells Andre that she's very worried about this um, meeting with his friends that she's going to feel left out because when they get together they all just speak in Romanian and she doesn't always understand and she like can't really respond and everything which is fair I can understand how that's isolating and like would make you just feel like you're just there as a decoration but on the other hand like could you give your husband slack that he's seeing his like buddies I don't know like for the first time in a long time like maybe it's not all about you this time just just wondering just wondering but an out asshole Andre comes out again and says, is this a new trend of yours to be a feminist? Which just sets the tone for this whole evening. Andre also lets it slip in his talking head that at one point when he was still in Moldova, he was on the police force, which like actually kind of tracks. I could see him as like, not in America, probably, but like as a big tough cop. And it also kind of, I think he was working almost as like, doing physical labor when he was in Ireland. So, like, that's very different from his life right now, which all we've really seen him do is, like, you know, put Eleanor on a bed while he mounts a, a flat-screen TV on the wall. It's just very curious. I'm not really sure what his motivation is for not working. 
But luckily, we get to hear more about that because he sees his friends, you know, they're all hugging, like drinking, having a good time. But Andre's brother is there as well. And they start to ask him, like, so what are you doing all day? Like, you're a housewife? And he's like, yeah, you know, why not? I'm not working. Why would I be working? Which, like, the wink, wink of that that they're not going to say because they don't break the fourth wall on this show is I think what he's getting at is that he and Libby make X amount of dollars from being on TLC, from filming the show. Sure, it's not consistent, but why am I going to work if that money's coming in anyway? If I'm willing to put my life on camera and they just hand me money for that. Sorry, my dog is at the microphone. I need to get him off. All right, I'm back. So, yeah. So that's what he's saying. Like, like he does have an income, but obviously he can't say that on TV. His friends don't let this go. They're telling, like, they are pointing out what I just did. Like, he used to be a hard worker, and now he's quote-unquote soft. Like, he's just staying at home with the baby. Which, don't get me wrong, that is a job. Um, it's very hard work. Like, there's been multiple studies that show being at home with children or a child is more hours a day than it is going to, like, a typical 9 to 5. Which, by the way, Libby is also not going to a 9 to 5. But anyway... On the other hand, he has no business like puffing out his chest all the time when when he's not working a job, question mark. So, yeah, it was it was a really good uh, dig at Andre. I, I liked to see it. I would like to see that more. Libby, despite her anxieties, does find women who speak English. She heads into the kitchen with her sister-in-law, Andre's brother's wife, and some other woman who seems to speak English a little bit better because they're trying really hard to, like, talk to her about the wedding, but her sister-in-law's English doesn't seem, like, all the way there. So this really kind woman is kind of being the intermediate and, like, helping both sides translate, which is nice. Libby updates them on the wedding and she says that her sister Jen is coming, but she's worried because she, sister Jen and Andre tend to butt heads. So they're all like, uh, why? And she's like, oh, because she's an American woman, which, as I said, is a bunch of bullshit, which is just coded language for I am a rude person and I'm going to hide behind the guise of being blunt when I'm just being rude. Andre is also rude, which Libby admits here. She's like, well, yeah, he is rude, but he's not these other things that they make him out to be, which I think is fair. But I kind of wonder if her behavior in this episode, besides her her acting, is she has this anxiety that her family's going to show up in this like nice, peaceful trip right now where it's just she, Andre, and Eleanor is going to be shattered when all these Karens get off the plane and step into the worst country in the world, Moldova. So she and Andre leave this party. They get back into a taxi. At least one of them is pretty drunk, Andre. He's like practically rolling around in the back of this taxi. And this is a good example where I was pointing out in a different episode, I think a lot of the things he says sometimes, yes, they're rude. Yes, they're hurtful. He shouldn't say them, but he's not 100% serious. I think he has a very dry sense of humor. Because he says something like, well, if your family gets here and they're rude, they're going to be in the basement. One, he's really drunk when he's saying this. Two, he's like smiling and kind of laughing about it. Libby doesn't think that's funny. And they just kind of like sit awkwardly with all this tension between them as they go back to his parents' house. All right, back in the U.S., let's, uh, let's go over what's happening with Kalani and Asuelo. Asuelo. As we saw at the end of their segments on the last episode, Oswello just full on left Kalani and Mother Kalani and the two boys 
hopped on a city bus and claimed that he was going back to Utah because he didn't like, I don't know, he, he got grumpy on his car ride and he needed a bottle and a nap, something like that. So Kalani wakes up and she goes into the kitchen and Father Kalani is there. It seems like he has the same laryngitis that Kalani has. And like I have to say to like Oliver, whose birthday it is, he looks pretty sick. Like he has like a runny nose. His eyes are kind of glassy. And I know Kalani said like before they left for this trip, she had been up all night with both of the boys because they um, they were all, you know, sick. So his father is there and her sister Colini shows up. I'm sorry, I'm going to mess up these names. But anyway, her sister is there. They're all having breakfast and Kalani and her mom are kind of like, looking at each other sideways, and finally her father rasps out, where is Oswello? As it turns out, uh, Oswello did finally call Kalani, well, she called him the night before after he had left in his temper tantrum and tried to ask where he was. Instead of just being like, I don't know, throwing up his hands and letting his wife come get him, Oswello sent her three false locations for her to drive to. At that point, Kalani just kind of said, you know what, you have to give me the real location or I'm just not going to bother picking you up. So that's when he finally let her know where he really was. Um, You know, it's nice to think that Oswello, in his simplicity, like really didn't know where he was, but he probably just was being an asshole. He was probably like sitting outside a Disney store with like a lollipop or something when she finally came to get him. And basically, the way she was able to finally get Oswello to get in the fucking car was to beg him to come celebrate his son's second birthday. There's so much wrong with that. Like Kalani is being so good about this. Like she's saying, I'm trying really hard not to let this drama affect what this weekend is intended to be, which is my son's birthday. So anyway, they're talking about how Oswello came back and Father Kalani is like, what do you mean coming back? Because he doesn't know anything that happened the night before. Everyone who knows what's up is like, looking scared they like don't know whether to tell father Kalani because not that they are trying to defend Oswello but like he's going to go into that back bedroom and murder Oswello if he finds out what he did to his daughter they do end up giving him like you know a rough overview of what happened how he was calling Kalani like a bitch in the car and they just were like going at it for that entire car ride and that he finally walked out so father Kalani's sitting there with his coffee looking like he's considering like his options for burying Oswello's body, like, you know, his his uh, murder method, you know, what he's going to do. But his wife steps in and says, look, don't like, don't let it get ugly. Let's have the child's birthday. For all of our sakes, don't get violent with Oswello. Um, so then we find out where Oswello is and he's in the back bedroom. It seems like he's refusing to put on his mic. So, um... I would guess he was also, like, having some kind of conflict with the producers, the people who are there from TLC, which I would love to see that, too. I would love to see that background drama. Uh, Kalani begs him to come out for breakfast, and he won't because he's playing video games. And so we leave it with uh, Sister Colini is talking about how she's just so frustrated with Oswello's shit, and she has this really great insight into her sister's marriage. I feel awful for my sister. She breastfeeds still. She has two babies sucking the life out of her. And now she has a husband that just sucks the life out of her. So. Later that day, we get to Oliver's birthday party. Kalani is setting up in the backyard, but she still doesn't even know if the father of her child and her damn husband is going to get out of the bedroom and like 
I, I don't know, be an adult and show up to his son's birthday party. I think this is cute. It's just like an outdoor, like backyard birthday party, like appropriate for a two-year-old. They're not, you know, going over the top for TV. Like it looks like kinds of birthday parties I had when I was a kid. She rightfully points out that Asuelo is just going ahead and making their son's birthday all about him. And Colini, who we saw in their regular season, is once again being a better father, co-parent with Kalani, her sister, than Asuelo ever was. Like, she's helping set up. She's helping take care of the kids. Like, honestly, they don't need him. They're just like, he's just dragging all of them down and making everyone's life harder. I don't know why they're dragging this out. The party starts and one of Kalani's friends is like, uh, yeah, where's Asuelo? And so then she is to awkwardly be like, uh, yeah, he's inside the house, but I don't know if my husband's going to come outside at all. (laughs) And the friend is kind of just like, oh, okay, sorry. Kalani then goes inside to try to like coax Asuelo to come outside. And he, once again, it seems like he won't let cameras in that room. He's not wearing his mic. And he says, if you keep bothering me like this, you're going to make me say something bad to you. Uh, I think you already did, Asuelo. And also your actions are speaking pretty loudly for themselves right now. She goes outside and she's like, it's like talking to a four-year-old, which I think is super generous. I think she gets way more out of her conversations with Oliver and Kennedy than she does with her large adult husband. So now Father Kalani has just had enough and he goes inside to talk to Asuelo. He tells him that it's not about how he feels this weekend, that he needs to be a man and stand up for his son's birthday. Asuelo at this point, okay, he has come out of his bedroom. He has put on his mic and like a shirt, I guess. And he looks like a little kid at school who's getting disciplined by like the tough male gym teacher or something. Like he still like looks kind of defiant, but he's like also obviously deferent to um, Kalani's father. Father Kalani, who we all know is terrifying, reminds us that he is, for the sake of his wife, his children, and his grandsons, he is doing all he can to not make this physical with Oswello. He has this really great line where he says, if they were back in Samoa, my hands would be speaking my words. All right, so just in time for cake, which is usually like the fucking end of a child's birthday party, Oswello comes outside and graces everybody with his presence. The party breaks up and he brings in like one dirty plate while Kalani is like cleaning up everything in this backyard in their Airbnb. He tells us that, you know, this weekend has been rough, but at least they made the babies happy. Kalani is kind of standing there with her hands full of stuff to bring inside and rearrange and clean up. And she's like, "Um, is there anything you want to say to me? And he just kind of blinks, like his two brain cells rub together, and he decides that that is all he wants to say. Poor Kalani just looks so defeated at this point. Like, how, like, the laundry list of things he should be apologizing for, he can pick out not a single fucking one to offer to her. He's not going to say, sorry for being a fucking asshole in the car on the ride here. Sorry for calling you a lying bitch. Sorry for walking out on you and the kids and humiliating you in front of your friends and family. Um, Sorry for sending you three false locations. Like, Kalani, if you're listening, I just did it for us, Willow. Um, So maybe that will help. Um, I, I just feel terrible for her. I don't know why she's hanging on to him. All right, let's get to Paul and Karini out in Kentucky. They are in the hotel and Karini is feeling upset about this situation. 
she had expected that when she came to America with Paul and left her whole life behind, that at the very least, his parents would help him out, would help both of them out. And as it turns out, he has this filthy car full of fucking garbage and old French fries, and his parents have um, intentionally locked them out of the house by not letting them have a key. Because of this whole situation where they're in like a fucking, I don't know, days in and being locked out of the house, Karini, I think, very justifiably feels like they're not wanted at all in the U.S. She has just fucking had it with Paul, and she is saying that she never would have come to the U.S. just for Paul. They were supposed to go together, I guess, with Pierre to go have dinner with Paul's mother, but Karini is just over it. She doesn't want to see his fucking face anymore, so Paul goes by himself, which, like... His mother feels the same way. Like her son's been in Brazil for God knows how long. And she's like, oh, well, I didn't want to go to dinner with just you. I wanted to see all of you. They have dinner anyway. And he starts acting like a maniac with his mother saying that he like needs her help. And it's just going to be temporary. Like, why can't you help us out? And she is telling him, as well as us, the audience, with Paul, he always says it's temporary. He always does this shit. And it's never temporary. And, like, he can never get it together. So, you know, he's, what, like, 35-ish, at least? Maybe even older? Like, it's time you have a wife and children. It's time to get your shit together on your own. She does offer to babysit Pierre, but she also is like, look, you can't use my grandson as a prop to be in my life. Like, I'm happy to help, but you can't hold him over my head and, like, threaten that I'm not going to be able to see him if I don't let you live in a house that has no room for you. She also says, which, like, it's kind of a boomer thing to say or, like, a very, like, Republican thing to say, but there is a lot of truth to this with Paul, that back when, you know, she was young and in Paul's situation, like a young parent, they took pride in doing things on their own and they never would have come to their parents for help Like, why can't he try to find that same pride in taking care of his wife and his family? Later, I think the next day, Paul takes Karini to a supermarket to show her that American life is the best life. Um, They're going through, like, the fresh fruit section, and he's trying to show her all this stuff to impress her. He's also wearing this giant backpack that I had a lot of questions about. Like, if I saw a guy like Paul acting like Paul with a giant backpack in inside a building, I think I would be calling 911. He's like, oh, Karini, the, the fruit is all fresh here. And uh, look at all these onions. And she's like, um, yeah, we also have supermarkets in Brazil. Although it did remind me at one point I was going to school in Boston and there, like where I was living, there were a lot of international students from all over the world. And I was at a Shaw's one day and uh, a student was like, um, excuse me, I'm trying to buy an onion and I don't like, I don't know what all of these are. Can you explain to me what all these different types of onions are? So I never thought about it, but I guess in some parts of the world, there is really just like an onion that you go to buy where in the U.S., like, I don't want to sound like Bubba from Forrest Gump, but there's like yellow onions, white onions, you know, all types, red onions, things like that. So, but yeah, like I said, she's unimpressed. She's like, uh, yeah, been there, seen that in Brazil with my parents where I have a home. Then they see some baby wipes and Paul goes into like a total meltdown about how it's buy five, save five. Look, if you buy five, we save five. No, no. It's nice and if you buy five, you save five. Two, three. Oh, it's okay. No, it's... No? You don't understand. You buy this and you get a discount. It's okay, Paul. You have no money. Exactly why we're doing that. 
Karini's like, yeah, but we don't need these fucking wipes. We also don't even have any money to buy food. We don't need these wipes. And he's just going on and on. Buy five, five, buy five. <laughs> I can't even say it. Buy five, save five. Buy five, save five. And as if this woman is not humiliated enough by her maniac husband in a backpack, he takes her to the feminine hygiene section and tries to buy her stuff. She's obviously really embarrassed about this, but he's like trying to see, does she want pads or tampons? Oh yeah, I know you, I know you don't like the wings. And she's just like, Paul, stop. I don't want to talk about this. He gives like a truly disturbing definition of what he thinks a pad is versus what a tampon is. And finally, he picks up a pack of what looks to me to be adult diapers, like for incontinence, and asks her if this is what she wants. And she like is just refusing to engage with this. So he says, okay, I'll just go ask the pharmacist. Yikes. Uh, So what Paul takes away from this is that he thinks once Karini gets a house, that will allow her to grow up a little bit. So he takes her house hunting. And this is like truly one of the darkest things I've ever seen. This realtor shows them, I guess it was once a trailer, but this thing needs to be like knocked to the ground and burned. Like you need to salt the earth where this thing was. Uh, She says it was previously occupied by a man who lived there by himself for 20 years. Uh, He was essentially squatting there until his family finally had to intervene and put him into an like a long term adult facility. It is absolutely disgusting like i don't even think there are four solid walls at any point inside this trailer it's also just filled with garbage like there's probably like food waste in there like i'm sure like human waste probably dead animals and yet paul has paul goes ahead and asks this woman if there is air conditioning inside this shack that does not have four walls I just have to say, Paul has some balls here, too, or last week he was snapping at Karini that she has no right to tell him about his messy car because she grew up in a wooden shack, which is just so insulting. And now all he has to offer to his family is this, I guess. Um, So, yeah, like I said, there's so much garbage in there that it would probably cost more to hire the dumpster and get rid of it than it would just to buy this as is house. So obviously Karini is like, "Uh, yeah, this is a big no. Next, they go into what is a recreational vehicle, like something that, you know, people who are retired, like David from Las Vegas, drive around in and live in temporarily while they're camping and everything. But the idea is they're going to live in this mobile, you know, it's not a mobile home. It's a recreational vehicle permanently. So obviously it's very narrow, uh, but it is, you know, it's not a squatting pit like that last place they saw. I understand, though, Karini is, like, still, like, I don't want this either. Paul, once again, showing that he has zero self-awareness, says that once they have a space to live in, like this RV, they're going to have to keep everything neat and tidy, everything organized. I saw that house they were living, or that room they were living in in Brazil. Um, I've seen your car, Paul. Both of you are messy as fuck. You appear to not be able to throw anything out or clear a space on the table to eat a meal i would love to see it karini is pointing out that it's too hot for her and the baby to even be inside this rv for long so like how is that supposed to work i'm sure there's a generator of some type but then you have to pay to keep that thing running like i don't think rvs are meant to be a long-term living situation this poor woman just looks dead behind the eyes she's better off just taking the savings and going home to brazil going home to her mother 
And finally, she says what we've all been thinking, what's been true in her heart since day one. I read online, apparently Karini is pregnant again, which makes me just so sad, so angry. <laughs> like, Karini, why? Why, why, why? You know, it's unconfirmed. Um, 90 Day Fiance, for some reason, does a really good job of locking down spoilers on social media with their cast um so we often don't even know these things or like the outcomes of things until after the show has actually been aired to avoid spoilers i hope it's not true i hope just paul's full of shit you know she does not need another baby with this guy all i want for karini is to go home to brazil and just forget about him last but certainly not least we have miss angela down in georgia Angela is finally getting ready to go to Nigeria to go see Michael and to go get married. But first, we have this really sweet scene where she has to go say goodbye to Mama. The good news is that Angela was able to get one of her friends to take care of Mama. I'm sure that this person, like, also works in healthcare as a nurse of some kind. Like, somebody who Angela can trust is, like, going to do the work that it takes to, like, fully care for Mama, who is pretty much bedridden at this point. Angela feels so bad leaving her mom in that condition, and she says this could very well be the last time I ever say goodbye to her. Um, Mama, though, is very much like, yeah, just go ahead. Go get married. Yeah, get out of here already. Like, she's being very supportive of Angela. Uh, It's just really, it's really sad. You could see Angela's, like, lingering at the doorway. She doesn't want to, like, take her eyes off her mother. It's extremely sad. But she finally does leave, and she gets in her car, She calls up her friend Sissy, who's going to join her in Nigeria, and they're talking about the trip and everything. Sissy reassures her that everything's going to be fine in Nigeria and that Mama will be fine when she gets home. Angela also has something clipped to her bra strap that I had a lot of questions about. Um, Is it a cell phone bag? Is it a wallet? Are your cigarettes in there? Um, Angela, please let me know. She arrives at the airport. She checks in all her bags. Angela has, I think, two wedding dresses for herself. And also somewhere in there is Michael's tux. And she is on her way to Nigeria. Check out, Michael, ready or not. Oh, God. My face is feeling like a hot tamale right now. So the next time we see her, Angela has touched down in Nigeria. I have to point out she is extremely polite to everybody helping her out. This is what I mean about Angela. You would expect her not to be, but she is an extremely courteous tourist. She's very respectful to people in Nigeria. And I just like to see it. It's like a good departure from some of these people. And Michael is outside waiting for her. And I have to say, for whatever their relationship is, he's so genuinely happy to see her as well as her. They're like hugging. They're laughing with each other. They're joking. I'm just comparing it once again to Azan Nicole, where Azan's like, oh, God, her plane actually did land. She she crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Now I have to deal with her. Um, So then they get ready. They leave the airport and Michael takes her to the apartment he's rented for their stay. Um, They get in and Angela, unlike Ariella on the other way, is super into this apartment. She said, oh, this is so nice. There's like furniture and like the living room and the bedroom that she likes. But the bed is really not up to her standards. I'm not sleeping in that bed. It's hard as an erection. <laughs> then they go into the kitchen and there is this mouse trap on the floor that like is the size of a bear trap. And there is a giant mouse in there. 
Angela's freaking out that it's dead and that's germs. Michael's like, oh, well, it's dead. I'll just get rid of it. So he he takes it out of, well, he takes the whole trap. He doesn't take it out of the trap. And he chases Angela around the apartment with it while she's screaming bloody murder. And finally, he takes it outside and he places this rat trap next to a treadmill that's sitting on their porch. All right. (laughs) Okay, so that's it for this week. I will be back with a recap of episode six uh, in like a few days. In the meantime, catch up on The Other Way. Highly recommend it. You could follow this podcast at Almost There Lazy on Instagram. Yeah, I will see you next time. Bye.